Matt, thanks for picking that song. It's like the whole Christian life in seven verses, isn't it? Six verses, yeah. Seven minutes. <laughs> I invite you to open your copy of God's Word to Revelation chapter 8. Greetings to those of you at home watching us live stream and those of you in the fellowship hall. So uh, this begins uh, the third section of Revelation, uh, the third major portion. I've been describing to you how I believe the book of Revelation is written. It's written in a series of cycles, and uh, each cycle containing seven things, seven churches in Asia Minor, seven seals, and now we're going to look at seven trumpets, and there are, no surprise, seven of these cycles and this is the third cycle that we begin today. It stretches through the very end of chapter 11. So let me read a portion of uh, this uh, section. Let me uh, read, let's read together chapter 8, verses 6 through 12 this morning, reading from the English Standard Version. This is the Word of God. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened. And a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. This, too, is the holy, inspired, and inerrant Word of God. And let's ask for help as we look into this tricky section of His Word. We do come now, and we humbly plead our ignorance before you, Father, of these uh, strange verses. We pray this morning in particular for the clarity that your spirit can bring us. And I pray that you would give me clear words and thoughts and Lord that you would open up this obscure portion of your word to us as we study it today. Father, this we pray through Christ. Amen. This is a painting by uh, French artist Henri Matisse. Originally, it was hung uh, in the prestigious New York Museum of Art uh, in 1961. Matisse was known for his use of color, and we see that displayed in this picture of That's right, it's a painting of a sailboat. <laughs> now perhaps. I pulled a fast one on you, I must admit, be because the picture's actually upside down. <laughs> this is the correct way to view Le Bateau, or the boat, uh, by Matisse. Uh, the New York Museum of Art made the same mistake when, they, when the piece debuted in 1961. They hung the painting upside down, and it stayed upside down for 47 days until one of the museum patrons uh, uh, insisted that the painting was upside down, and her persistent urging, uh, after her persistent urging, this prestigious museum finally admitted it had made a careless mistake and rehung Matisse's work the correct way. Well, I have to confess to you that I don't understand much of what's referred to as modern art. And a great deal of it leaves me turning my head sideways like Matt did when I put this painting up. Call me a Philistine if you want to. I confess that 
there's a lot of modern art that I just don't understand. I think this next portion of the book of Revelation has produced a similar effect on many people who've read it. Uh, it leaves, uh, this section on the trumpets leaves a lot of us turning our heads sideways trying to understand what the Lord has written here. Uh, what John is describing. Uh, admittedly, it's, it is difficult to understand what he's talking about in many of these verses. I mean, if you'd glance down to chapter 9, what do we do with chapter 9, verse 7? In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair and their teeth like lion's teeth. And I think that kind of leaves all of us turning sideways, what in the world? Uh, describing this section, uh, Ligonier Fellow and scholar Derek Thomas says, this section begins the third in the cycle of seven visions. In some ways, it is the most difficult section of the book of Revelation. So far, the visions have been fairly self-explanatory, but now the scenes become more complex and their identification more puzzling. And just to drive that home, this assessment that he makes of this section, consider that Charles Spurgeon, uh, the prince of preachers, does not have a single section on the section of Revelation that we're in. Spurgeon has over 3,500 published sermons spanning 63 large volumes, but there isn't a single sermon from 8, 9, or 10, not until we get to the very end of chapter 11 do we see a sermon, but no sermon on the description of what the trumpets include from the Prince of Preachers. As a result of these unusual visions, explanations of the seven trumpets tend to run on the bizarre side and the, or in the spectacular. At least that's what I remember as I heard these verses explained to me in junior high. What is John describing in these trumpets? And what do these unusual and strange visions refer to? These, these visions that kind of have all of us turning our heads sideways. And, and, and do we experience these things now? Or are they confined to a future period of time? And these are questions that we want to start answering this morning. What is John describing in the seven trumpets? And how do we understand these, these puzzling and sometimes strange verses? I think we'll gain an understanding, and I don't confess to say a complete understanding, just an understanding of the seven trumpets by examining two characteristics that we see here. Beginning today... And then continuing two weeks from today, Pastor Brian is preaching next Sunday on Psalm 23. I know you'll want to hear that. Uh, but two weeks from today, we'll pick up again where we've left off and look at the two characteristics of the seven trumpets. The first characteristic that we'll look at this morning is the preparation of the trumpets. The seven angels before the throne of God prepare to blow the trumpets they've been given. So let's look at the preparation of the trumpets. I, I want you to see the angel's preparation uh, to begin with. And so let me start reading this time, going back to verse 2 of chapter 8. We read this last Sunday, and then I'm going to jump to verse 6. So here's chapter 8, verse 2. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Now verse 6 now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. And John seems to introduce tension here. And he's got us holding our breath as, as the angels prepare. I was in band uh, in junior high and high school. And once or twice a year, we would put on a concert for our parents in the school auditorium. And these were somewhat formal events, and we were... Uh, told that we needed to dress up as much as junior high and high school kids can can look nice and uh, you know uh, 
we were told to dress up for that evening and so on the night of the concert we would gather in the band room we'd tune up our instruments we'd warm up uh, and then the band director would lead us down to the auditorium and you know how the seats are set in kind of that half circle and we all took our places and we made the final tweaks to our instruments and then he would usually stand in his his podium right in front of uh, in in the middle of our semicircle and he would whisper a final word of instruction don't forget you know while the curtain's still closed and while we can hear mumbling out in the crowd and then then the curtain would rise and we'd see moms and dads seated out there in the dimly lit auditorium and and, and then the director raised his arms and our instruments snapped up in unison and all collectively we would inhale to to blow the first note of our first piece and that's that's where we are here uh, the the angel has snapped the first angel that is has snapped his trumpet up the conductor the lord is has got his hands raised about to give the downbeat for him to blow the first trumpet so these angels are preparing to sound the seven trumpets that they've been given we said that these angels last sunday were were uh, angels of rank uh, it says here that they are standing before God. And, and this is how Gabriel describes himself to Zechariah in Luke 1. And so it seems that these angels stand out in some way and, and are given this particular assignment by the Lord God to sound these seven trumpets. They're, they're not just the rank and file angel. They are, they are angels of, of significant rank. And, and they're prepared to blow the trumpets. There is a sense, though, that you and I need to prepare as well. You and I need to prepare ourselves to hear, just as they prepared themselves to sound the trumpet. Uh, especially in light of, of the, the strange nature of what we're going to read, we need some preparation before, before we can hear the first trumpet sounded. And I want to suggest to you that uh, to prepare ourselves, we need to understand four things. Uh, there are four things about these trumpets that we need to understand in preparation to hear them sounded. The first thing we need to understand is their background. This is perhaps the most important thing that we need to understand about the trumpets. Uh, the images that John is going to go on to describe in the rest of chapter 8 and chapter 9 are uh, firmly rooted in the Old Testament. Throughout the seven trumpets, we'll see John borrowing language and sometimes using the same words as passages from the Old Testament. The first and perhaps most obvious reference is to Jericho. Uh, yes, that's right. The, the song, Joshua Fit the Battle of Jericho, uh, back in the book of Joshua, remember the, how they, they marched around the city of Jericho for seven days with seven priests blowing seven trumpets. And the account in Joshua 6 says, You shall march around the city all the men of war going around the city once, thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up everyone straight before him. Coincidentally, archaeologists have discovered the city of Jericho, and indeed, the walls fell out. But like this account in Joshua, these seven trumpets are a call to battle. And through these trumpets, God is declaring holy war upon Satan and upon those who follow him. So Jericho uh, is where we see these trumpets based in but then we can go further and we see 
that these trumpets are rooted in the ten plagues that, that the Lord sent upon Egypt uh, when the children of Israel were in captivity. There are, uh, we'll see this more next week, but there are obvious and deliberate parallels between the first five trumpets and the ten plagues that God sent upon Pharaoh. Uh, you might recall that the ten plagues were, each plague was aimed at one of the Egyptians' false gods. And like those plagues, these trumpets are uh, aimed at, uh, they, they announce uh, God's judgment on the false worship, the worship of idols in our day, the, the worship of false gods by the world around us. And then further, recall that these ten plagues were, were God's judgment on Pharaoh, in particular for his hardness of heart, uh, his deliberate disobedience to the word of God. And, and in, in a similar way, these trumpets announce God's judgment on the unbelieving world for their hardness of heart and their disobedience to, to the word of God. Look, look across the page to chapter 9 and then down to verse 20, and look what it says there. The rest of the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues didn't did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. We hear their hardness. They refuse to repent, much like Pharaoh would say, Okay, Moses, but then it says, But Pharaoh hardened his heart, and he changes his mind, and he, he tells them, No, you really can't go. The ten plagues uh, also led to the exodus of Israel from the land of Egypt. And in a similar way, these trumpets herald for you and me a similar exodus. An exodus out of the slavery of this age to our promised land, the new heavens and the new earth. All these things are subtly communicated. And it's not so subtle that you can't get it. You are very intelligent people. And, and I know you see these things as you read them, but the ten plagues are, are the basis and lie behind some of these seven trumpets. And then lastly, much of the wording is drawn directly from prophets. Uh, Ezekiel and Jeremiah uh, John draws on their vocabulary and, and in some sense speaks their sentences when he mentions these things. And as we work through the trumpets, we'll see uh, the very references that those men said. So there's background in the prophets. I think many times, now... Frankly, a lot of us just avoid this book like the plague. Uh, and this portion in particular, we just kind of, whoa, wow. You know, we feel that's way above my head. And so we zip through. And, and if we give it thought at all, we struggle to, to think about what it means. And, and we have difficulty understanding the trumpets. And they, they leave us turning our heads sideways because we don't take their background into account. Instead of looking back to the language of the Old Testament, what we frequently do, and I, I did, is we look ahead to our time and our future, and we try and uh, decipher these visions from the language of our experience. Really, we're facing the wrong way. And really, we need to turn around and look backwards into the vocabulary that the men who wrote the Bible used and into the, these three things, Jericho and the ten plagues and the prophets. And it's when we do this that some of these trumpets all oh, come to have a little more meaning to us. I want you to hear uh, this man's comment, and he's, he's explaining uh, the part about the locusts that I read to you, the horses with the long hair and human faces. And uh, He's a scholar named G.K. Beale, and he says this, to attempt to find the dominant model for the locusts in the realm of modern warfare, for instance, helicopters, as one popular writer suggests, anybody hear that? 
Yes. Uh, the, the, these are actually modern helicopters. They're not, but anyway. Uh, to attempt to find the dominant model for the locusts in the realm of modern warfare, instead of Old Testament imagery, is not the best approach. Rather than first going forward from John's time into our present or future, the reader should first go back from John's time to the Old Testament, since this is the first clear source from which Revelation derives its images and determines their meaning. First, and perhaps most helpfully, to understand the trumpets, we need to understand their background and where these words and phrases and images come from. They come largely from the Old Testament. There's a second thing that we need to understand. Not only do we need to understand their background, we need to understand their target. Who are the trumpets aimed at? For whom are they blown? This too is very important. And the answer is that the target of the trumpets in these verses uh, is unbelievers. The target of the trumpets is the world of unbelievers, those who have never put their faith in the atoning death of Jesus Christ, who've never trusted in his sacrifice for sin upon the cross. Well, how do we know this? Pastor Rob, how do we know that this is who John has in mind, indeed who the Holy Spirit has in mind, as he writes this? Well, there are two reasons that I want to give you. And the first reason is because we know that believers are sealed by God and protected. If you would flip back a page in your Bible to Revelation chapter 7, let me point this out to you that we looked at several weeks ago and just remind you, because this is, this is very important for you to see. This helps us understand the trumpets. But chapter 7, uh, beginning in verse 1, talks about where we're sealed. After this, John writes, verse 1, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. Uh, we studied this several weeks back. We said that this seal was God's uh, mark of ownership upon those who trusted Christ, his seal of protection, that he will keep them until the end. And... Notice the very three things that they're not to touch until we're sealed. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees. Those are the very three things affected by the first two trumpets. Uh, God has sealed and protected believers from these things. Uh, look again in chapter 8. Flip your page back now and listen to the first trumpet. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood. God has sealed believers and protected them from the judgments that are falling upon these three areas. We know further. Look at chapter 9 with me and glance down to verse 4. We see this seal mentioned again. Uh, and this is uh, addressed uh, about the locusts that I've already mentioned. They were told not to harm. Look, the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. 
So we know that the trumpets are aimed at unbelievers because Christ's followers have been sealed and protected from these judgments. I hope that as you read this, you... Thank God. I hope that you heave a sigh of relief and you feel great comfort as you read these strange events, as you remember that God has sealed the saints, marked them as his own, and protected them until the day of redemption when Christ returns to take us home. So can can I stop and ask again, has he sealed you? Have you turned away from sin to rely completely on the payment Christ made for sin on the cross? We know the trumpets are aimed at unbelievers because Christ's followers have been sealed and protected. We know, secondly, uh, because of this phrase that's used again and again, those who dwell on earth. We know the trumpets are for unbelievers because these judgments are aimed at those who dwell on earth. Look down in chapter 8 to verse 13. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. This is a phrase that occurs several times in Revelation, and it always refers to the unbelieving world. Back in chapter 3, the Lord promised the church in Philadelphia, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. So reference to unbelievers in the world. And then in chapter 6, Uh, believers who were martyred for their faith pray, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And so when we see this phrase used, we know it's referring to unbelievers, and this is how we know that the trumpets are aimed at those who don't know Christ, because they're aimed at those who dwell on earth. And so from these two reasons, we can safely conclude uh, that the target of trumpets, of the trumpet judgments, is unbelievers. They, we've been sealed by God first, and second, they're aimed at those who dwell on earth, those who have never put their faith in the atoning death of Christ. Think of how this res- corresponds to the plagues in Egypt. Who were they sent against? Egyptians, while the children of Israel escaped uh, the plagues. In the same way, the target of these trumpets is those who don't know Christ. Listen, listen to this again from Derek Thomas, a uh, Ligonier fellow and uh, Bible scholar. The opening of the seals, which we looked at previously, and the sounding of the trumpets point us to the same great reality, but from different perspectives. The seals view the unfolding of the redemptive purpose of, uh, purposes of God from the point of view of the Lord's own people, those who are sealed. The trumpets view this same reality from the point of view of the unsealed, those who are not the people of God. The opening of the seals brings great consolation to the people of God. The sounding of the trumpets brings great woes upon those who are not the people of God. The seals are comforting. The trumpets are warnings. We need to understand that the target of what we're about to read is aimed at the world of unbelievers around us, those who've yet to trust in Christ. There's another thing as we prepare to hear these trumpets sound, there's another thing we need to understand, and that is their purpose. Why? Does God send the trumpet judgments on those who dwell on earth? Why are these seven plagues sent on unbelievers? There are four reasons. I'm going to put this on another slide for you so I have more room. First, they're they're blown to warn unbelievers of danger. Like the trumpets of Jericho. Uh, These trumpets sound the alarm that God has declared holy war on Satan 
and those who follow him. And these trumpets sound the alarm to the unbelieving world that God's judgment is, is near. This is what we read just moments ago from Ezekiel 33. As Ezekiel describes the watchman, if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning, and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. The first purpose of the trumpets, like the trumpet of Ezekiel 33, is to warn unbelievers God's danger is near. The second purpose for the trumpets is to reveal God's mercy. Is to reveal God's mercy. How, you might ask, is God's mercy revealed through these seven judgments or seven plagues? This is, again, very important. What we see throughout this section is that while God sends his judgment on the unbelieving world, his judgment is restrained. He holds back. His judgment is limited. Fifteen times in chapters 8 and 9, uh, God sends his judgment on the unbelieving world. While he sends his judgment, his judgment uh, is limited to only affect a third of creation or a third of the sun. A third of mankind. John's probably not using mathematical precision here, but he's simply communicating that God in his mercy limits his judgment. Look at chapter 8 with me, and then look down to verse 7 in your Bible. Uh, the first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. And throughout the rest of the chapter and into chapter 9, for a total of 15 times, John tells us that God limits his judgment, that he extends mercy to the unbelieving world. The Apostle Paul refers to this restraint as the kindness, forbearance, and patience of God. And Paul writes this in Romans 2.4 where he says, speaking to uh, the presumed godly person, he says, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. There was a mother who once approached Napoleon Bonaparte, the emperor of France, and she was seeking a pardon for her son who was facing death. Napoleon uh, replied that her son had committed a certain offense, not once, but that twice, and that justice demanded that he be put to death for his crimes. Uh, justice demanded his death. And the mother responded to uh, Napoleon, I did not come to ask for justice. I beg for mercy. Your son does not deserve mercy, Napoleon replied. Sire, it would not be mercy if he deserved it. I ask for mercy. And when she said it like that, According to this account, uh, Napoleon replied, Well then, 
I will have mercy. And spared her son. This is what we're seeing in spite of these judgments. And fortunately for you and me, God is not as stingy with his mercy as Napoleon is. Because the word says of the Lord, therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. And from Ephesians 2, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. This is a purpose of the trumpets to reveal God's mercy. It's a third purpose that we find in, in these verses, and that is to call sinners to repentance. This flows directly out of the last purpose. Uh, clearly, repentance is one reason for these trumpet blasts. Uh, uh, as, as we just read this verse, or, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? The reason that only a third of uh, creation is affected is so that uh, the unbelieving world has an opportunity to turn from their sin. This was the same reason, repentance, uh, for the watchman to sound his warning in Ezekiel 33. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? And then Peter picks up this same theme. <coughs> the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. We know, unfortunately, that many do not repent at the sound of the trumpets. Like Pharaoh, who was given ten opportunities to repent during the ten plagues, these Unbelievers, many of them will also harden their hearts in unbelief. Again, I want to point you down to chapter 9 and verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands. But this is a third purpose of the trumpets, to call sinners to repentance. There's one more purpose of the trumpets in these verses, and that is to announce the return of Jesus Christ. Trumpets are often associated with the return of Christ in Scripture. Uh, for example, in Matthew chapter 24, we read this, they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And then Paul refers to the trumpet in 1 Thessalonians 4. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the, tr sound of the trumpet of God. And then again in 1 Corinthians 15. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. It's, it's probably what we're looking at at the end of this section, uh, at the very end of chapter 11. If you want to flip a page, we hear this trumpet referred to there in chapter 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud noises in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. So trumpets, fourthly, are sounded to, renounce, to announce the return of Jesus Christ. This is why God sends the trumpets, at least some of the reasons that he sends uh, the trumpet judgments on those who dwell on earth, to warn them of danger, to reveal his mercy that there is still time, to call sinners to repentance, and to announce the return of of Jesus Christ. There's one more thing we need to understand before we uh, 
look into the trumpets themselves. We've seen their background in the Old Testament. We've seen that their target is the unbelieving world. And we've seen their purpose, those four that we've just gone through. Finally, we want to look at their nature and understand their nature. Now, some of you might not agree with me here, but I, I think this is correct. Should we understand these trumpets literally? Will there be locusts that look like horses with human faces and long hair? Or is it possible that these things might be symbolic? Do they stand for something else? This is really important as we get into this difficult language. And uh, whichever one we choose will determine just how strange our explanation gets. On the one hand, it seems that some things should be taken literally. The Bible certainly tells us to expect natural calamities that some of these trumpets describe. And, and Paul wrote this in Romans 8, we know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and what we are going to see here is some of this groaning from uh, the fallen world, the created order. It's, it's not right. So on the one hand, it seems, yes, some things should be taken literally. But then on the other hand, it seems that some things uh, should, are, are symbolic. Uh, in the second trumpet that I read earlier, a burning mountain is thrown into the sea. Is that a literal mountain that John's referring to? Maybe a volcano? Or could it be a symbol of something else? And here we turn back to the Old Testament where mountains sometimes represent kingdoms. And a mountain being thrown down represented a kingdom being overthrown. It really does seem that some of the trumpets are, are symbols too. So which is it? Literal or symbolic? And I'm going to go right down the middle and say the safest answer is probably both. John could have both in mind. And I want to show you that this is not uncommon for John to do. That he might say one thing and, and have a literal intent, but also have a, a symbolic idea behind it. And there's a very clear place in the Bible where John does this very thing. It's in John chapter 13. This is in the upper room, and after Jesus dismisses uh, Judas from the upper room, it, it says this, uh, So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately, Judas, that is, immediately went out, and it was night. Is John just telling us what time of day it is? Well, it was night. But he's doing more than that. He's revealing the condition of Judah's soul. Because just above this, a few verses before it, it says, Satan entered into him. It's at this point that Judas is completely handed over to the power of the enemy. In a way that's similar to John's use of light and dark here, uh, he seems to be doing things like that in the seven trumpets. Yeah, some things have a literal meaning, but some things seem to be representing something else. Dr. Joel Beakey, he's a, the president of Puritan Reform Seminary. He explains this symbolic language of some of these things like this. He says, storm images can symbolize uh, historical judgments against nations. The fall of a mountain into the sea is a symbol of a national calamity, forcing people to drink bitterness, which is called wormwood here in these verses, signifies bitter experiences like invasion, defeat, and exile. Therefore, these trumpets symbolize natural and political disasters throughout this age that display God's sovereignty over creation supremacy over man's idols, and wrath 
against sin. This is the nature of the trumpets. We should be careful about how we take them. Uh, whether we take them literally or as symbols of something else. So the fourth thing we need to understand to uh, understand and prepare for the trumpets that we'll look at in two weeks. So what is John describing in this section? What is he getting at? Uh, these, even not some of the ones I've read this morning, some of these bizarre visions that, that again leave us kind of going like this as we read the passage thinking what in the world is that about and so how do we understand these sometimes and often puzzling verses uh, by we understand them by understanding two characteristics of the trumpets and we've looked at this first characteristic this morning uh, the first characteristic is the preparation we've seen the angels prepared to blow and and I've mentioned that you and I need to prepare to hear them as well. How to hear them. Uh, we need to understand their background, that it's rooted in the Old Testament. Their target that is directed at unbelievers. While the seals we looked at before were directed primarily to believers, trumpets are specifically aimed at unbelievers. We looked at their purpose, which we described four ways, to warn unbelievers of danger to reveal the mercy of God to sinners, to bring them to repentance, and then to announce the return of Jesus. And then lastly, we looked at their nature. They could contain both literal and symbolic elements. Well, <clears throat> how do we apply this? And what are we going to do with this, really, a preparatory message on the trumpets? Well, first of all, if God waits to show mercy to the unbelieving world, who are we to do anything less? Ezekiel 33 says that God does not take pleasure in the death of anyone. So neither should you or I. How can you and I who many of us, hopefully most of us, hopefully, frankly, all of us, how can you and I who've experienced such great mercy from the hand of God through Jesus His Son, how can we fail to extend that same mercy to those around us who don't know Christ? Who have darkened understandings who are lost and enslaved to sin. Frankly, if you've been listening, there hasn't been a lot of mercy shown to the unbelieving world, especially from the church. We're ready to see them die and go away. Let them go to hell, we say. Goodbye and good riddance. This is exactly contrary to the nature of God. Yes, we loathe what they do. God loathes what they do. But in His restraint, He is revealing His mercy to them. And if He's revealing mercy to the unbelieving world, you and I must as well. Second, based on the mercy that you and I have experienced, we then must be faithful to share the good news about Jesus Christ and His payment for sin on the cross. We must, we're called to be faithful to share the good news about Christ to those who have not yet experienced uh, his mercy. How well are we doing this? Who do we know without Christ? 
Who are we praying? Asking God to save. Anyone? And who are we asking for an opportunity to share the good news with them and warn them of the judgment to come? These verses trumpet God's mercy. And you and I are called to do the same thing. Let me pray. Lord Christ, we confess that uh, we have not seen the mercy in these verses. We have not read Your restraint here. But we have been quick to say, let them have it. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray that You would grant us repentance for our lack of mercy and enable us to display to the unbelieving world around us the same attitude toward them that You have. While we might despise what they do as You do, Lord, enable us to be merciful to them just as You were to us. Who are we to show anything less than the same mercy we've received? And Lord God, in light of this mercy, let us be faithful to communicate the good and glorious news of Jesus your Son and His payment for sins and His free offer of forgiveness to all those who will turn from their sin to trust in Him. Oh God, do this work in and through us here in these last days. We ask through Christ. Amen.